You're listening to Inside Outside Innovation, episode 39, recorded live at the Lean Startup Conference 2016. Before his talk at the conference, Trent Griffin talked with Josh about the world's most unlean startup, why large organizations should apply lean startup when running tests for growth and customer acquisition, and how to make an internal team that actually works like the market to sort good and bad ideas. Tren is currently a senior director of strategy at Microsoft, runs the blog 25IQ, and has worked in business development and strategy for several decades. Hi there, everyone. I'm Vicki Clafter, producer of Inside Outside Innovation, the podcast that brings you the latest insights from people who know the most about building lean businesses, innovating within corporations, and disrupting entire industries with passion and precision. Connect with our team on Twitter at the IO Podcast or leave us a review on iTunes. And if you've got an area or idea you'd like us to dig into, let us know on either one of those mediums and we would be happy to talk about it on the show. Now, let's get started. Uh, Trin, um, tell us a little bit about what you do, uh, either your trade or your background. What brought you to today? The talk I'm going to give in, in a bit uh, is really about an experience I had in the world's most unlean startup in history. And uh, it was a company called Teledesic, and it was a broadband satellite system, and Started in 1994, and I was the fourth person in the door. And so, to some extent, uh, what I've decided to talk about today is sort of like what Nassim Taleb, the Black Swan author, talks about uh, anti-role models, which is that startup was everything that a lean startup isn't. Because sometimes you can learn from people who did the wrong things just as much as you can learn from people who did the right things. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that and then talk about my venture period where I actually did some work with some companies who did the right things and had a a better, more lean approach. Did you say satellite phone? It, it was or actually broadband satellite system. Broadband satellite it, system. It was going to be okay. similar to the Iridium system, but it was going to be for broadband. And the problem was, uh, because it was it was a non-geostationary system, you have to build the whole system before you have any service at all. And so we had to spend $9 billion before we had a dollar revenue. And that's, you know, the sort of antithesis of what a lean startup is, which yeah. is, before you start scaling something, you find out where the dogs eat the dog food. And this thing, we had to build the whole system for $9 billion before anybody had found out where the dogs eat the dog food. And then worse than that, we had regulatory risk, political risk, finance risk, technical risk, market risk. You just sort of go down the list. And it was sort of like an insane challenge that only could have been conceived of because of the founders we had, uh, Bill Gates and Craig McCaw, at the time, 1994. This is the year before Windows 95 came out. And also, it was sort of part of the build-up to the dot-com boom. And we raised a billion dollars and got to a $3 billion market cap and all that. But it's interesting in that oftentimes you want to learn from people who failed or didn't quite get there. And sometimes you get something like pets.com or whatever, and eventually somebody gets it right. Yeah. But it's a couple generations later when you have mobile phones and cost curves are different and all sorts of things. And so there was WebVan, you know, Amazon Fresh may succeed where WebVan failed, but it just, it was a great idea, you know, too early. 
you know, what you don't want is a, is a bad idea badly executed. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. a disaster. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have a good idea badly executed. You, you can see the matrix. <laughs> you know where see where I'm going. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Trent, uh, what are some of the other ways that you're seeing uh, companies or startups applying Lean Startup today? Well, the, the major thing is the cost to, to create a startup. And by startup, I mean it's an organization in search of a, of a business model that scales. The cost of doing that has never been lower. Now, that, that is a different question than scaling that business plan and that, and that startup. So once you find out dogs eat the dog food, then you've got to actually go out and do some of the stuff that Uber's doing, which is you've got a customer acquisition cost, and you've got to scale the business and all these things. You know, that's when you do the A round. But, but the early stage, you can do for very little money. The web services that are available today, the things that are available in the cloud, a couple hundred thousand will get you a market test and a minimum viable product that would have taken millions, not, you know, not too long ago. Hmm. Maybe not for the, some some of the really young people here don't remember those days, but sure. you know, you, you're not buying any servers. You're paying by the month. Yeah. You know, if you need to scale up, you've got more. This is all new. The other thing that's new is um, a lot of startups today really only have market risk. The technical risk is really not that high. You know, there are some that do have significant technical risk, but oftentimes it's just. Will the dogs eat the dog food? Can yeah. you create a platform? Can you create network effects? Can you create something that, that is sustainable as a business? Not too long ago, there were more, more technical, technical risks in some of the businesses. I, I agree. We had uh, on a recent episode one of the principals from the GrowthX fund down here uh, in the Valley. and th- Their hypothesis was that the market developer is starting to rise in almost prominence to the technical developer. Right? As, as there's fewer and fewer of the riskiest assumptions are really, can you build it? It becomes more and more, have I actually found a market that's attractive enough and a problem that is painful enough to be able to address? Yeah, both of those things. And then there's one more piece, which is there's this thing called CAC, which is customer acquisition cost. Oftentimes, dogs want to eat the dog food. And oftentimes, there's technically is no problem with doing it. A lot of the fintech startups are this way. And the principal challenge is how do you acquire customers cheaply enough um, to scale the business rapidly enough so there's significant NPV and because you're not cross-selling, you're starting from scratch. And so if you're only generating a 25 basis points a year and you're trying to recover a significant customer acquisition cost, that's your principal challenge. So that market development person, the person who is your growth person, who figures out virality, who, who allows you to acquire a customer for $40, $45 as opposed to... $200, that's the magic, and it's hard. I, I think you nailed it, and, and I, it's a good application of lean startup that I don't know if enough people are really grasping, and that is early enough on, are you doing enough tests on your customer acquisition models and the channels that you have? Because especially if you're adopting customer development practices early on, and it's a lot easier to sell somebody something if you brought them along doing interviews and sitting down with them over coffee, but... If your business model financials rely upon this being something that's done with very light touch or almost just completely over the web, it makes it very difficult to be able to see if you actually have something that's going to be able to scale. Yeah, oftentimes you'll have a mirage in that the first sales are done, both the founders are there and the CTO's there and you're closing the sale and you could never, ever close a deal with those economics. Mm -hmm. It it Mm -hmm. would never be possible. (laughs) Yep. And and eventually you need to get to a person who's basically sign up on the web Sure. With no technical support, and you've got to get them on board for $45 or $55 or something. And that's magical. Sort of how do you do that? How do you keep it that simple? 
you know, how do you create virality? So you've got enough, you know, a, a K factor greater than one. All these things, you know, that's the that's the trickiest bit. And you may have, a, you know, it's like millennials have a tremendous need for financial advice, and uh, you know, they sort of know they need it, but also they have a lot of priorities. And you know, the idea of paying a lot of money for that is is a problem. So how do you acquire them? Get them to stay, and provide the advice in a way that has a lifetime value, which is scalable. Absolutely, that scalable piece. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, scalability is a harder challenge today than people realize. A number of our listeners are organizations who are just starting corporate venture capital arms, or are maybe in the first year or two of those. What What are some of the lessons uh, that organizations should learn when they're maybe first starting their corporate venture capital arms, or doing it, especially as you look at the differences between an internal corporate venture group and external VCs. The difficulty with internal venture capital is with external, they have the market as a forcing function on which companies should continue to be funded. And inside a company, decisions aren't determined by this outside arbiter. And so basically, how do you find out which ones uh, need fertilizer and which ones you know need to be put on end of life and oftentimes if you have the result determined by politics you end up with zombies mm-hmm. and they just continue to grow and eat funds and you know you don't have that that discipline around that so knowing that you have that weakness you have to have sort of a diverse group that's detached that has um, the ability to perform the function that the market would otherwise mm-hmm. because one of the things about innovation is that it is a power law and you have a small number of ideas out of many that produce 80% of the, or more of the return. And so finding them, feeding them, and not having them starve because everybody gets an equal allotment is probably the trickiest thing in corporate venture capital. The other thing is sort of diversity, which is you really need diversity in the broadest possible sense, not just you know in terms of sex and racial background or religion or whatever, but it's also how do people think what are their backgrounds? So, Trent, thinking about uh, the participation of corporations in venture, does it make more sense for them to go into other funds so that they can basically take advantage of more of those market forces, or does it make sense for them to have their own funds and continue to do things internally? I think you know the, the only benefit of it is actually investing on their own. But it also um, makes sense to co-invest you know, co-investing is is uh, where you have a partner and on a regular basis you try and do deals together. And, you know, usually, you know, most corporate money is a little bit later than your average early stage firm. But by establishing a relationship with an existing firm and going on a side-by-side basis, there's this guy, Richard Zeckhauser at Harvard. And um, he has this idea of basically when you're when you're in a situation like that, you basically want to be in the sidecar of a smart person or a smart firm. And you rely on their particular expertise and their particular pattern recognition skills that you maybe don't have. But you have your own things to add, and you are diverse in that sense. Why do they want to work with you? Well, you have background and knowledge of markets and, and things that they don't have. Risk comes from not knowing what you're doing. And in situations where you even only sort of know what you're doing, it's a good idea to be in a sidecar of somebody who does. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I think, is the best approach, which is Absolutely. a co-invest. So, Trent, one of the other uh, areas that you mentioned that you're passionate about is helping organizations figure out business models, right? 
Uh, you touched on it a moment ago that really a startup is that organization or group of people or a team that's still in search of that scalable business model. What are some of the things that you also look for so that you know that maybe they're on the right path to finding a good business model or other things that you do when you're helping people try to understand what business model they should use? Yeah, it's, it's funny, but uh, I, I go to a person you don't think about in the venture world, but to Warren Buffett's idea of a moat, and people I admire who in venture think that just because you're in venture doesn't mean you ultimately don't need a moat for your business. You need some impediment to supply so you earn a return on capital that's greater than your opportunity cost of capital. And so in tech, it's largely um, network effects. You know, it used to be more you could like, get some intellectual property, you get a patent or something like that. But increasingly, it's network effects which provides the moat. So I'm almost always, first and foremost, looking for network effects. And then I'm looking for reinforcement, which is, are there operational skills um, that reinforce that? Are, is there intellectual property that reinforces that? Is there a brand that reinforces that? Are there a set of things that uh, are going to create some ability dif- to differentiate and generate what, again, Warren Buffett calls pricing power, which is, are you able to raise prices without holding a prayer meeting? If you have to hold a prayer meeting to raise prices, you don't have a moat and you don't have pricing power. So. Yeah. And, you know, usually it's, it's a network effect where the more users you get, the more valuable the service gets, and you want a, a nonlinearity. And look at the great businesses that have been formed, you know, since the 70s, they all have network effects. That's the good news. The bad news is network effects work both, both ways in the, in the same way. And so you could have a BlackBerry or a Nokia or something like that that gets into the opposite of what, what built them up. And so... To be very careful to maintain your uh, value for customers and your network effect. Trent, anything else that's on the top of your mind or that you're learning here at the conference? I just the last thing I would say is is this is a great conference in terms of we need to create new sources of jobs. Um, there's this thing uh, called the economic graph, and the economic graph is really an effort to say how do we make sure that the three billion workers in the world who want a job can get a job, and not only a job but a meaningful job. And that's maybe one of the biggest challenges of our era. It's showing up in a lot of ugly politics. And we need to make sure that everybody has a chance to grow and earn a living and feel meaningful. And so movements like this to create new companies and new sources of employment are important because it's not only important for economics, it's important for the social fabric that everybody feel like they can have a meaningful job have a meaningful income and participate in society. So I'm hopeful that efforts like Eric's can scale globally and not just be a major thing in places like the major magnet cities like Seattle and San Francisco and L.A. and New York. You know, people who used to be steel workers and coal miners or whatever, they may not be programmers, but they have a, a meaningful source of employment, and that means lean startups in those communities in different ways, doing different things. There'll, there'll never be another Silicon Valley but there can be different versions of something like Silicon Valley for many places. And so it is a, uh, it's an important uh, societal mission that Eric's sort of enhancing. And so I'm hopeful that it scales and other pick, people uh, pick up the torch and we create like lots of good jobs. I appreciate that. That's, that's very important and very noble. Uh, if people want to learn more, could you remind us again about your blog URL as well as your Twitter handle? Yeah, my, my blog is uh, 25iq.com. It's that simple, just and then IQ. And um, at Twitter, I'm at Trend Griffin. And 
these are the topics I talk about. I talk about business models, science, technology, innovation, economics. I, I try and stay away from politics. I go into it sometimes, but you know, it's mostly like, how do we get positive? How do we create positive change? How do we create jobs? How do we create innovation? You know, how do we compete and, and make the world a better place? Could you give us the backstory on 25 IQ? You know, it was just a short URL that it was, was available. available. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And and so, you know, it's really hard to get a URL these days. Especially four characters like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty amazing. It's, it's pretty amazing. And some of the other ones are Japanese and, you know, I don't know where they all go, but I just, I put it in and whoop, there it was. <laughs> so, and most everybody who's tried to start a startup has gone through the same process. Yep. Oh, so absolutely. So some, sometimes, my friend Rich Barton says, um, he's the founder of Zillow and other places, he's a great venture capitalist, great investor, great guy. He says, basically, when you're looking for a good URL, you want to have a high Scrabble score. You know, you, you want to find things that, that, that are unusual. It's yeah. Zillow's an example and all of that. But, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to, to generate some, some memorability, and then you can imbue meaning in, in, a, in a word that's neutral. And I think for a lot of companies, that's not a bad way to go. That's good. Good insights. All, all right, right, Trent. Thank you very much, sir. All right. That wraps up another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. Huge thanks to Trend for taking time at the conference to speak with us. We'd love to connect with you through Twitter at the IO Podcast or on our website, insideoutside.io. If you've got a topic or area you'd like us to dig into, let us know because we'd love to share our insights and invite other phenomenal experts like Trend onto the show so they can share theirs. Until next time, go out and innovate.